As they're heading out, you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to do a little exercise as we get started. Not exercise like you're working out, although if you want to get up and stretch, you're welcome to. Um, But an exercise of this, I want you to think of three people in your life, three people who are near to you but far from God. They're near to you but far from God. They might be in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, some a sports team of your kid, whatever. Like they're near to you, but they're far from God. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You can write those names on a piece of paper, or you can text them to maybe someone in your community group or D group, or write them in like your, your notes or whatever. You'll send yourself an email. I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Like don't just stare at me. Look down and do that. I want you to write it down, three people, names of three people in your life. We're going to come back to this, but write those three names down. We're going to hold those, and we'll come back to them in the message as we go. Several years ago, I was meeting the Rancho 3M team who had already gone to the orphanage there in Mexico, and I had to go down a day late. I was in the Charleston airport awaiting the flight and had my earbuds in, was doing some work, was just kind of into the doing work that I needed to do at the time. And I was sitting by my gate, and the gate uh, said that it was a flight to Nashville, um, and then it was going to, I guess the next flight was going to Dallas, and I knew I was on the Dallas flight. So I was like, okay, the Nashville flight needs to go out, and then the Dallas flight. So I'm just going to wait, kind of keep working there in the airport. I'd never heard of flights that like stopped at one place and then continued on. Maybe you guys had heard of that, but up to that point in my life, I had never heard that. So I lost track of time, but remember hearing over the loudspeaker, like through the the earbuds, you know, when you have your earbuds on, but you hear something else. Uh, uh, They were calling a passenger for the Nashville flight named Michael Fever. (laughs) And I was like, what are the chances? of somebody being named Michael Fever. My name's Michael Seaver, very different. And I like looked around and it was like, huh, yeah, that's interesting. So I just kept working and moved on. Uh, I, uh, I just feel like such an idiot. Um, so, so then I, I'm like, I'm not going to Nashville anyway. I'm going to Dallas. So 10 minutes later, call over the you know, PA system. Last call for Michael Fever. And I was like, poor guy, he's going (laughs) to miss his flight. So I kept working. A few minutes later, I look at that board at the gate, and it's no. I'm expecting it to say Dallas now, because it said Nashville, now it's going to say Dallas, but it says Chicago. And I was like, where did the Dallas fly? So I go up to the counter, I was like, I was like, what happened to the Dallas fly? And they're like, "It's, it's, it's leaving. And I was like, no, that's the Nashville flight. Like, well, it's stopping in Nashville briefly and then going to Dallas. And I was like, I've never heard that before. And then the lady says this, what's your name? I was like, oh, no. Michael Seaver. She's like, we've been calling you. It's like, you were calling Michael Fever. So different. So different. <laughs> My wife loves this story. And every once in a while, we'll like, be driving and she'll just be like, Michael Fever. Like, such an idiot. It's inconvenient, but not devastating to miss a flight like that. 
Today's passage, we're going to find a last call. Not a last call for a flight, but a last call for an eternal destination. A last call in history for people to turn from their sins and repent of their sins and trust Jesus as their Savior. Well, in the passage today, talks about the final harvest. Now, we've seen the last judgment several times in Revelation. Revelation's not written chronologically like this happens and this happens and this happens. So we're going to actually find some more of this as we go. But we are looking at the final call today. This last call is a warning to the lost and an encouragement to the found. Let's look at Revelation chapter 14, starting at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Point number one today, we see three messages to humanity. In verses 6 through 11, we see these angels calling out to humanity, the first angel does this. It's a, it's a call of hope to those who flee God. I mean, to, to God. A call of hope for those who flee to God. We must note that this call is an, uh, 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 to those aligned with the dragon. This angel has the eternal gospel, and he's proclaiming the gospel. And who is he proclaiming to? Look what it says. Every nation and tribe and language and people. So this is not just a gospel for some people groups or some countries. This is not just an American gospel or an Asian gospel or an African gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom for all peoples. Sometimes people say that all religions lead to the same destination. You'll see the bumper sticker talking about coexist. So Hindus for, for in India or Muslims in Pakistan or Buddhists in Tibet... They're all just kind of different ways to go to the same destination. That is strongly disagreed upon by this text. There's one gospel for all peoples. For the remote tribe in Namibia or the massive city in China, there's one gospel, and this text calls it the eternal 
gospel. This angel proclaims this eternal gospel. All people are held accountable to respond to it. And notice the content of the gospel, verse 7. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. This is not a truncated gospel. We love the gospel here at Risen Hope Church, but we don't want to just have a small view of the gospel. We want to have a big understanding of all the implications of the gospel. So sometimes we truncate the gospel, you know, the five fingers, Christ died for our sins, which is the gospel. It's a narrow view. This is a fuller view of understanding of the, the eternal gospel. Fear God. Fear God. Respect God. You, you owe God all. Respect the, the and, and turn to God. Cast all, all your hope on God. Give him glory, the text says. All loyalty and honor is to be given to him. That loyalty you gave to the dragon and the beast, that honor you gave and worship needs to be given to God. Flee from your idolatry. Worship him. He created everything. Notice the emphasis of this eternal gospel coming from this angel here in the text. It is speaking a lot on God's justice. For if you just love, like, think about gospel and just the love of Jesus without the justice of Jesus, you aren't going to know what to do with this passage. Because this passage has a lot of justice coming. There's a warning here for those who will not align with the gospel. And that heads toward what angel number two says. It's a call of warning to those who hope in Babylon. Look at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we will see a lot of wine in this passage today. And though some passages of Scripture speak of wine as celebration, today's passage, the idea of wine is speaking of drunkenness and foolishness and ultimately judgment. Those loyal to Babylon have been drunk on Babylon. You might say in kind of our modern idiom that, that they've kind of drunk the Kool-Aid. They have fully bought into Babylon. Chapter 17, we'll talk about the prostitute Babylon. They're totally involved with this lady. They're devoted to the things of Babylon. Babylon is the idolatrous worldly systems, whether it's ancient Rome for the original readers or the United States. It's the city of man, Augustine would say, that opposes God. And it says fallen, fallen is Babylon. The, the text is, um, that word is in the perfect tense, which talks about a future occurrence that is good as done. Babylon will fall in the end. And this speaks of the anticipation that all the idolatrous worldly systems will fail. And friends, doesn't it seem like sometimes that all the worldly systems won't fail? They seem to be profitable. They seem to be wise. But that smoke and lights, those are going to fade. Verse 8 speaks of the, those loyal to Babylon. And friends, you've got to understand this, and we'll look at this way more as we get to 17 and 18. But Babylon is seductive. It has pulled many a man and many a woman by its tentacles. It is the seduction of economic success and prosperity. It's the seduction of security and safety and power. It's the seduction of sexual immorality. 
G.K. Beale says it this way, the devil and his agents use the world economic system to ensnare people through their love of money and material pleasures. Verse 8 presents this in terms of being drugged or drunk and thus becoming totally insensitive to and unaware of what is truly happening around us because of our overweening enjoyment of worldly comforts. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. What a battle we face in this materialistic culture, yet how great the consequences of our decisions. There's a warning here in our text. One of the things I like about Beale's quote is that we realize we're all capable of this. We're all capable of the seduction of Babylon. We'll see in chapter 17, as it's talking about Babylon the prostitute, like John starts marveling at her. And like an angel kind of like rebukes John. You're like, John, who walked with Jesus, like was there at the transfiguration. And he's marveling. He's tempted just like you're tempted, just like I'm tempted. And friends, we've got to note that Babylon represents idolatrous worldly systems, but it's closely tied to sexual immorality. And let me give you one clear and blunt example in our culture. We live in a culture that promotes sexual freedom, sexual liberation, and your sexual preference is a badge of honor. Your sexual desires and compulsions are first and foremost priority in our culture. And yet we live in a country that is completely uh, contradictory about our views. We cannot be consistent. Our culture cannot be consistent in what it teaches. Only the biblical worldview is consistent. Let me show you that inconsistency. So this sexual liberation and all that is held up over here. View number one. And then... Our country wanting to get rid of sexual abuse, especially toward women and children, is view number two. These do not go together. They they do not stay separate, I guess. They always go together in the sense that you can't have one without the other. Our country does little to censor immorality. Why? Because immorality, friends, is economically profitable. Pornography is a $14 billion a year industry in the United States, $3,000 a second in the United States, $180 billion worldwide. What does every stat and poll and study show? Sexual abuse and porn use are significantly linked. In America, there's a loyalty to Babylon, economic prosperity, and sexual immorality. While children are abused, marriages are ripped apart, women are exploited, and both men and women are enslaved to the lust of the flesh. Babylon will kill you. And friends, we must ponder whether some of that wine is on our breath. For it is seductive not just out there, it is seductive in here. Are we repulsed by sexual immorality or are we playing with it? Are we giving into seduction? Are we clear on the biblical ethic of sexuality or are we craving it? 
and running to the pressures of our culture? Are we convinced of the grace, purity, and oneness of the marriage bed? Friends, are we fleeing sexual immorality or are we cozying up to it? Are we having the accountability of godly men and women in our lives and sisters with other sisters and brothers with other brothers holding them accountable? Or do we just kind of silently suffer our sin and shame and then what Satan does is he condemns? He's like, do this, lust this way, and then if you do it, then how could you? How could you ever? That's what Satan's tactics are. That's what he does. Our text continues about the loyalty to Babylon being a loyalty to the beast. Angel number three is a call for judgment toward those loyal to the beast. Look at verse nine. This gets very stark. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image who receive the mark of its name will also drink the wine of God's wrath. It's as if God's saying, you want some wine? I'll give you some wine. G.K. Beale notes that God's wine is actually better than Babylon. Babylon's wine only affects them temporarily. God's wine lasts forever. And notice this, friends. Who is around when the wine of God's wrath is being poured out on those worshiping the beast? Look at the second part of the verse, verse 10. He, the unbeliever, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus is there. Jesus the Lamb is overseeing the wrath being poured out. Does that surprise you? This isn't your Sunday school flannel board Jesus that's just smiling and wearing the robe, has the long hair thought only of loving and never of justice, only nice, no anger, Dorothy Sayers warns us, do not declaw the Lion of Judah. He is no house pet. This is the biblical Jesus. He is present as his wrath is poured out. He did not die for these people. He did not take God's wrath for these people. They are having the wrath of Jesus poured out on them. They did not trust the lamb to cover their sin. So here's the question. Is that the Jesus that you think about? Yes, loving, but also bringing complete equity to those who rebel against him, those who harm his children, those who are loyal to Babylon, the beast, and Satan. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is Old Testament imagery of the wrath that comes on those who rebel against God, shake their fist at God and worship satanic influences. 
And friends, let's note these people have been warned. All nations and tribes and languages and people are warned. Verse 7, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. At the beginning of this message, I asked you to write down three names. Three people that are near to you but far from God. Friends, let's take 30 seconds and just pray for those people. Because if apart from Jesus' saving work in their life, this is where they're going. This is not a game. This is the most serious thing. Let's take 30 seconds and pray. You pray for them by name. Verse 12, the audience shifts. And no longer has the angel calling to non-believers to repent, but it's speaking to believers. It's, it's point number two, one encouragement to believers. And here's the encouragement to endure. Look at verse 12. Here's the call for endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And we've seen this theme. We've hit this a lot of patient endurance in the book of Revelation. Those living through the great tribulation must endure. In chapters 1 through 3, there's several of the seven churches that are commended for their patient endurance. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the church of Smyrna is called to be faithful unto death. In chapter 6, as the saints are under the altar praying, how long, O Lord, it says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Wait a little longer. Chapter 7, John is asked, who are these in the white robes around the throne? Those who have gone into the great tribulation. They've come out of the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. These are the people who loved not their lives unto death. Revelation 13, the second part of 13.10. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So Revelation 14, verse 12 that we're looking at today, when it says, here's the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. This is not an aberration. This is not unusual in the book of Revelation. This is a major theme in the book of Revelation. Saints, we are to endure. We must endure. The gospel is preached, fear God and worship him, but realize that the worldly systems of Babylon will seduce you. The evil ones will come against you. They are battling against you, and you have to endure. And it would seem for the original reader, and maybe for us, that kind of starts some like anxiety right here. You're just kind of like, uh, I have to what? Like, this is kind of hard to think through. Lord, 
Is that really what you want me to walk through? And verse 13 allows us to kind of listen in on a conversation. It's like God the Father tells John to write down some stuff, but then it's not really a conversation just for John. It's a conversation to us to, to hear into a little bit of the Godhead talking. Look at verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven, that's most likely God the Father, saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So God the Father speaks about those who die who are in Christ, in the Son. Father, speaking of the Son, and who talks next? The Spirit. The Spirit says, blessed indeed. It is blessed to die in the Lord is blessed to die the first death, not having to endure the second death of hell, to die in this life, but have the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And note this blessing that the Spirit speaks. This blessing that the Spirit speaks over the people of God. It reminds me of like the war-torn characters in Lord of the Rings. They've battled the orcs, they're exhausted from war, and they're just kind of resting in victory. Exhausted but enjoying the victory. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Friends, do you hear that? There is a rest, an eternal rest that we will enter when life is over. Notice in verse 11, there's no rest for those rebelling against God. For in this verse 13, there is rest for those who endure who are called saints of God. True, lasting, joyful Sabbath rest. Rest from our labors, a resting from the battles of this life, a resting from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and a resting, but not a forgetting. Look at what it continues to talk about. It says for the, that the works that we do in this life, the, the faithfulness that we have in this life, will follow us. Do you hear that, sacrificial mom? Your godly works will, will follow you. Do you hear that, adoptive parent, faithful student, loving neighbor, servant-hearted husband? Do you hear about the sacrifice, your desire to honor Jesus, your prayers for your kids, your love for your neighbors, your service to your local church family, your care for the fatherless and the widow, your generosity? None of that is overlooked. It does not earn you heaven. Jesus does that, but it follows you to heaven. It's storing up treasure in heaven. Friends, you may be exhausted, but do you hear this verse? It says that God sees you. God sees your toil and striving and serving and laying down your life for others. God sees you. I was writing a card to a lady in this church recently, and I just pray before I'm writing a card, like, Lord, what do you want me to say to her? And that was the phrase, God sees her. God sees her. She's here, she's smiling and interacting with people. She has like a hundred kids pulling on her. Not really a hundred. Her husband has to be gone for work oftentimes. Ma'am, God sees you. A few weeks ago when Jeff Vanderselt was here sharing, we just encouraged him 
for running into the fire of the Mars Hill situation. And he's just in tears. I talked to him on the phone later or on a Zoom call later. And behind him on a bookshelf is that little helmet that we gave him. And he just recounted of talking to other people. And the thing that God kind of spoke to his heart, but what he's told others is, is God sees me. When I didn't think other people saw me, God sees me. Hebrews 10, 16. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Friends, when we understand that God sees us, it helps us in the enduring. It helps us to know the prize set before me. It helps us to go hard after the Lord, even when we are exhausted. God is for us and God is with us. Our passage then transitions to the final judgment, the last call that happens. And this is harvest time. This is harvest time. Look at verse 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man and a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It seems like this passage either teaches of two harvests, one for believers and one for unbelievers, or a two-stage harvest for unbelievers. I lean toward the two harvests, hence my point, my third point of two harvests, and I'm happy to explain the rationale of that if you want to talk offline. Now, we find in this text that the harvest of earth is ripe. It is what we would call the end of the age. Genesis 15, Daniel 8, 1 Thessalonians 2 all speak of the idea of, quote, sins of humanity reaching their full measure. Like it's filled up the iniquities against God. It's tip-top. It's, it's happening. There's a full stop here. The rebellion against the Creator will stop at this point on earth. The harvest of wheat and the harvest of grapes, they're both ripe. And so in verse 14, we find one like a son of man in charge of the first harvest. We've seen that language throughout the New Testament. That's the Daniel 7 Messiah showing up. This is Jesus, the king with a crown on his head, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is reaping the believers to himself. The gospel speaks repeatedly of the harvest of 
people. We see that as John the Baptist, excuse me, speaks in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, talks about his, the, the, the Christ's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then a really important passage in the Gospels to understand this Revelation passage is Matthew chapter 13. Jesus will tell a parable, and then like many parables, many of us, the disciples are like, what the heck did that mean? So that's what we kind of see in this passage. So chapter 13, verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while this man was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do we want to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest the gathering of the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And a few verses later, the disciples asked that question for clarity. Verse 36, then he, talking about Jesus, left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest, get this, is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what do we find in Revelation 14? We find the end of the age, the reaping and the gathering. In both Revelation 14 and Matthew 13, we have wheat for the believers harvested to eternal life. The sons of the kingdom will be with their king in the new heavens and new earth. However, the illustrations of unbelievers speaking of judgment is a bit different. Matthew 13, the unbelievers are weeds to be thrown into the fire, but Revelation gets even more stark. It speaks of them as a grape harvest. Revelation 14, 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The wine imagery speaks even more of God's wrath, the gruesome picture of grapes being smashed. But it is not grapes, it is people who've rebelled against the lamb. The blood flows from the wine press, and the blood is as high as a horse's bridle, four to six feet deep, long as 1,600 stadia, 184 miles. This is speaking of gallons and gallons and gallons of overflowing 
blood, wrath for the guilty. This is a bloodbath. This is a massacre. And friends, just like we saw in in verses 9 through 11, this is the wrath of the Lamb, the Son of Man. In Isaiah chapter 63, we get a window into this. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garment and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's the Messiah. This has been the plan the whole time. This is Jesus going after those who have shaken their fist at God year after year, after year, after year, after year. There will be a wheat harvest for those who have eternal life, who've trusted in Jesus' blood. There will be a great harvest of those who deny Jesus. And there are no other options. Christopher, if you'll come on up. As we finish chapter 14, we notice a massive difference between the people in both this life and the next For God's people, there's encouragement to endure. Life now is hard for them, but God sees you and eternity will be restful. They'll be harvested unto the Lord. But for God's enemies, this life is easier. You go with the culture. You drink the wine of Babylon. You're at home here, but eternity will be hell. There will be no rest. There will be just judgment the winepress of wrath. Now, I told you at the beginning of this message about my foolish incident in the airport. The call was loud for me to board the plane, and I missed it. Friends, the call is very clear from this passage. Don't miss it. Don't have your name being called, and you just, ah, I have my earbuds in. Up, oh, I'm distracted by social media. Up, oh, there's homework tomorrow. Up, oh, this person I want to talk to. Up, oh, the mortgage I have to pay or the debt I'm in or this situation at work. Don't miss it. Like if you miss this, this is the worst thing to miss. For all those who do not have life in Christ, turn from him. Repent of your sin and trust him as your king, as your savior. You can do that today. You can do that right now. Ask Jesus, Lord, save me. I trust in your cross that you died for me. I want you to be my king. And we would love to talk more with you. For those who have life in Christ, there's a specific way I want us to end today about enduring. I want us to consider enduring 
with thinking about those three names that you wrote down. Those who are near to you but far from God. Will you endure in praying for them? Will you endure the possible awkward, embarrassing conversation of knowing that they're currently headed to wrath and judgment. See, there's a famous video by an atheist entertainer named Penn Jillette. He's a magician. In this video, he's talking to the camera. He talks, he recounts this show he had. I think he's in Vegas or somewhere. This show where this guy came up to him afterwards and tried to share the gospel. Here's an atheist guy explaining a guy came to him to share the gospel. And he actually said he was grateful that the guy was willing to talk to him after the show and talk to him about Jesus. And here's what he said. I've always said, so this is the atheist guy talking, Pendulette. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect them at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could, go, could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would be, it, sorry, it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where you ta I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Friends, this is more important. There are three people that are near to you. God has put you in their life for his gospel to go forward. I want us to pray for those people again and ask the Lord, Lord, give me opportunities. Give coworkers opportunities or other family members opportunities or my kids opportunities to share your gospel. Lord, forgive me where there's fear. Embolden me by your spirit. Let me have another brother or sister help me in this. Let's pray for those people again and also pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out labors into his harvest and that we would be labors of his harvest. We're going to conclude today by just spending some time praying and I'll read some scripture over us in a few minutes. Let's pray.